will speak through our speaker. I pray that you will open up our hearts to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We have the privilege this morning of welcoming uh, a young man who grew up in this church. He was three when we started, went through our youth group, um, surrendered to preach, has now been in ministry for how many years? 12 or 13 years, uh, out now in uh, Texas, out of the Houston area, a place called Montgomery, and uh, doing a super, super job out there. Uh, we heard him in the first service, got a great message, uh, and God's just going to use him in the ministry, and I believe in awesome, awesome ways. And uh, so we are so happy. This is uh, David and Pam Robertson's son, uh, David, our technician. This is their boy, Taylor Robertson. You would welcome him. I keep waiting for the day when one of these young guys brings up a pad and it goes blank. <laughs> and they don't have those notes in front of them like I have to have. It worked for the first service. It worked for the first service. So thank God, you very much. God thank you very you. much. Yeah. Awesome. Well, man, uh, it's great to, to be with you. Certainly an honor to be here. Uh, thank you, Pastor Lloyd, for the introduction. Uh, before we go any further, I would be doing an injustice uh, if I did not introduce uh, my family to you. Um, they probably wouldn't know, but I would know and I'd feel bad about it. So a little bit about my family here. Uh, again, we live in the Houston area. Uh, this is a few weeks ago. We went uh, on a New Year's Day hike outside of Austin. We drove over. There's a state park there called Enchanted Rock, a nice little family hike. And so we went out and, and it was a, a beautiful day. I think it was like 27 degrees when we were there. Uh, we're bundled up. Yeah. Uh, in fact, when we land back in Houston tonight, uh, the forecast right now says somewhere between six and 10 degrees on the ground. So, um, Anyway, so a little bit of my family. You see, we've got uh, my wife, Alexis, uh, who also grew up in Citrus County. We're high school sweethearts. Uh, but then there in the blue hoodie or the uh, blue beanie, that's Bentley. He's our oldest. Uh, he actually made the flight down to Florida with me uh, this, this weekend. Uh, and so you might see him running around here with some of my family. Uh, but he's our oldest. The guy in the Under Armour uh, sweatshirt, that's Nash. He's our middle child, if you didn't already guess that. Uh, and he embraces and embodies all things middle child, including. ADHD, um, and, and, and he, but truly, I, I do believe that he has ADHD, but I think the Lord at some point will use that. I'm just waiting for that day. Um, and then we've got our youngest there. She's our only girl. Her name is Mackenzie. Uh, she's five, uh, just turned five last week. Um, she made the hike. I have no idea why one pant leg is up and one is down. Uh, <laughs> But that's, that, that really tells you all you need to know about Mackenzie. Um, but she's five, just turned five, uh, and she, uh, her name is Mackenzie. We call her Kenzie for short. But if you would like to be her best friend, all you have to do is call her pretty. That's it. That's it. In fact, uh, I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but if you are a single dude in the room and you have yet to enter into a marital relationship, I'm going to give you a little bit of advice the word pretty and the word beautiful, they go really, really long way with the ladies, right? Including my little five-year-old girl. Uh, so that's a little bit about our family. Of course, as Pastor Lloyd mentioned, this church, standing on this platform is, is always an honor. It's always an honor to open the Word of God together. However, to stand where I am standing uh, is even more so of an honor because this church has everything to do with who I am today. 
I grew up in this church, as Pastor Lloyd said, I, uh, 1995. I was, I think, three years old and uh, came up through the kids' ministry and through the uh, student ministry as well. It was here at the age of seven that I accepted Jesus as my Savior. Got baptized a couple months later, right out in the, the, uh, the, the baptistry in the gazebo, actually, out here on the, behind these doors. Uh, and so uh, a major part of, of not just my life, but especially of my faith and, of course, equally uh, my ministry as well. In fact, I was digging through old photos, um, and I was able to... Uh, find some uh, of way back in the day. And so these are actually, some of these are from summer camp. The picture in the bottom left there is actually a photo from when we were still doing youth group in the Meadowcrest building over over there. Uh, In fact, that wasn't long after we moved into that building. But I can remember um, walking over from when all of church was in the Meadowcrest building, walking over after a Sunday morning, and this building was nothing but just raw materials. And I remember people signing their signatures on the walls and on the floor. Uh, I can remember people signing the stage. In fact, when this was built, there were stairs right here. I remember that too. And so uh, taking, taking it way back, this church is very, very special and important. So this morning, it's a great honor to uh, be a part of, of our time in the Word together. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, from Houston, been there uh, almost eight years uh, and, and uh, have the opportunity to travel to a lot of cool places over the last eight years. Uh, we've started churches in a variety of different places, Belfast, Maine. Uh, we've started churches in uh, places like Tacoma and Seattle, Washington, Vancouver, BC. We've got some church planning partners in other parts of the country, such as Mem- Memphis, Tennessee. We've got some in uh, Colorado as well. Uh, most recently started a church last year in Oahu, Hawaii. That trip, when we take uh, people out there to support them in ministry, for some reason that trip fills up in less than 24 hours. I don't know why. Uh, but we take, a, we take a group at least once a year out to Oahu uh, to, to partner with our uh, ministry partners there. And uh, coming up this summer, we're actually starting one in Grand Cayman. Uh, I did not make the cut on that list. I don't know why I'm not going to Grand Cayman, but uh, we have a team going. So uh, every summer, uh, when May, mid-May comes, we pretty much have a team uh, out somewhere around the world. Sometimes it's to Tarur, Uganda, or Honduras, or Dominican Republic, or of course some of our national sites as well. But we also have kids camp and, and, and youth camp and things happening throughout the summer as well. So last summer, uh, I had the opportunity to go to a kids camp. Uh, we were taking about 250 of our third through fifth graders uh, to this camp for a week of worship and discipleship and things like that. And we were out at the rec, uh, rec time one day, and there was this, this, these two young young men. They were putting their life jackets on and looking out. They were going to go uh, out on the lake and go tubing. And uh, this one little boy you could see was concerned. There's a little bit of anxiety there. And, uh, and, and he, he finally vocalizes uh, his concern. And he says, man, I, I don't know about this. And we're like, what's wrong, bud? And he's like, I, I don't know about that. Like, I hope there's not sharks. I hope there's not sharks. And I was like, you know, every logical adult knows that there's no sharks in lakes. He doesn't know that. And I wasn't going to correct him. And yet there was a little boy that decided he would. And this little boy, he said, buddy, puts his arm around him. They're like third, fourth grade. Buddy, he said, you don't have to worry about the sharks in the lake. There ain't no sharks in the lake. And I was like, wow, how kind of him to want to comfort his friend. But he didn't stop. You ever have that? You got someone in your house that doesn't know when to stop talking? Yeah, well, that, this is this kid, right? And he said, you don't have to worry about the sharks in the lake. All you got to worry about are the snakes and the alligators. <laughs> and I have never seen a kid rip off a life jacket and run up the hill so fast in my life. I mean, he was out of there, right? I mean, he, he, was, he was done. He was like, you know what? I, I don't want a part of this anymore. But I, it got me thinking when I thought, thought about this, this, this story that you know, don't we all just need somebody every now and again to come alongside us and comfort us, to let us know it's going to be okay, 
right? In fact, that's exactly what I want to talk about today, this idea of the, the, the ebbs and flows of life, the ups and the downs. You know what I'm talking about, right? See, wouldn't it be wonderful if life was just full of the ups? Wouldn't that be great? I mean, think about it. Think about a life without worry and uncertainty, misfortune, none of those, just the positives. Think about a life full of promotions, victories, financial raises, joyful moments and memories, right? That is a blissful life. And yet the reality of it is, is that most of us don't live in this constant state of joy or comfort or peace. And if you do, I will gladly change my flight for this afternoon so we can sit down and you can tell me how you're doing it because I'd love to know, right? See, the reality of it is, is life, life is hard. I, in fact, you could even say it's quite the opposite of bliss, right? And I don't know that just from personal experience, but all throughout scripture, we see where it tells us, hey, this is going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. In fact, if you look at the book of James chapter one, this is what it says. It says, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various what? Trials. I don't know about how, just by show of hands, how many of you in here, when you face a trial, you're like, praise God, this is amazing. I will do this the rest of my life. No, we don't do that, right? And yet the book of James tells us, hey, life's going to be hard. It's going to be trying. It's going to be challenging and difficult. But he goes on to say that it's the testing of your faith and it produces endurance, right? But that's not the only place. Romans chapter 5 actually says this. It says, and not only that, but we also boast in our what? Afflictions, which is a really big fancy word for hardship and trial and difficulty. And he's saying not only that, but we should boast in our affliction. We should, again, going back to James, be joyful, be grateful, because it's what produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. Scripture tells us life's not going to be easy. In fact, it's going to be quite the opposite. You may want to write it down this way, that life is not all sunshine and rainbows. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But life's not all about sunshine and rainbows. In fact, on the count of three, what we're going to do is we're going to just move past the elephant in the room right now. We're all going to sigh together. Ready? One, two, three. Yeah, that's right. You know, right? Because life isn't blissful. There's hard things that we have to face. We tell our kids all the time, you got to do hard things in life because life is hard. And so today in our time together, what I'd really like to do is to, to look at a, at a particular passage that we often use uh, in, in context of memorial services and funeral, funeral services, but yet carries great value for our everyday life. And, and maybe uh, unintentionally, we avoid it from the pulpit uh, at times. And, and, and the reason I want to share this is because this is what I've come to know is that even though life is full of hardship, God knew that life wouldn't be easy. Somebody say, praise God. God knew that life wasn't going to be easy. And we know that because this entire book we call the Bible that we are so honored and, and, and free to carry in the United States of America, that book is literally a book of hope because he knew it would be hard. And so if you haven't figured this out, we're going to be in the book of Psalms chapter 23, one of the most famous Psalms of all time. So turn your Bibles there, Psalm chapter 23. Uh, it's important for us to understand the background of this particular chapter though. So when you look at Psalm chapter 23, we look first at the author. The author of this particular psalm, his name is David. Everybody say David. And David, you might be familiar with. David is in some ways famous, in other ways infamous. But David, you may recognize from stories like David and Goliath, right? Uh, also, Saul's pursuit of David, which we're going to read about in a moment, right? And then also the story of David and Bathsheba. Some of you know that story. It'd make a great Dateline episode, wouldn't it? 
So David's a pretty famous guy, pretty popular guy, but here's what I love about David is David was really a walking, living, breathing example of how God can use anyone of any age with any history to bring glory to his name, amen? And that's the person who's writing Psalm 23. Now for Psalm 23 to really make sense, we we actually really have to go slightly before it into chapter 22. And so I want to read a few excerpts from Psalm 22 to give us an idea of where we arrived to in Psalm 23. So begin reading with me. Psalm chapter 22, verse one says this. This is in the words of David. He says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night, and yet I have no rest. And then he continues to go and read in verse 6. He says, but I am a worm and not a man. He's devaluing himself. He goes on to say, scorned by mankind and uh, despised by people, right? Everyone sees me and mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads. But then he continues on in Psalm 22 again in verse 11. He says, don't be far from me because distress is near. And there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong ones at Bashan encircle me. He goes on to kind of, uh, again, continue to express his desperation. But one of my favorite parts that you see there, I think it's on this next slide, it says, I am poured out like water. In other words, what he's saying is, he's like, I'm empty. I have nothing left to give. I think it's fair to say that David was burned out. He was exhausted, frustrated, angry, confused, lonely, If you want to summarize it all together, he was desperate. You ever been there before? If you've been there, say, I've been there. I've been there. And what's interesting is Psalm 22, you know, there's, there's, when we feel these certain ways, these, these overwhelming emotions and feelings, there's a lot of things that we often try to do to comfort ourselves. But what we see David doing in Psalm 22 is doing what all of us should do. And he's crying out to the Lord, Right? He's crying out to the Lord. He chose to, to, to air those burdens to the Lord and say, I need your help. Now, I don't know about in your house, in my house, and it may or may not be me, when things become overwhelming, trying or challenging, sometimes all you need is just a really good cry. You know what I'm talking about? You just got to go cry. You got someone in your house like that? Don't look at her. Don't do that. Don't look at her. But that's what David's doing. David is crying out to the Lord. In Houston, I'm honored to, to be in ministry within the church, but I'm also honored to be able to work with some sports teams. And there's a football team that I work with, a very well-known football team that uh, does fairly well every year. And I have locker room privileges, sideline privileges, travel privileges. And I get to speak to these team or this particular team on a formal level each and every week. And uh, I was at practice uh, this past season and uh, we were out there, they were running some drills. And uh, this one guy, he got hit, he got hit pretty hard. Uh, and you could tell he was kind of shaken up by it, probably a little embarrassed too. And uh, you could tell he just, it wasn't right when he came back off the ground. And I watched the coach. He told him, hey, listen, get up, go to the sideline, cry, come back and get back to work. Right. And that's how our lives work. Sometimes we just got to cry and David's here going, all right, I'm going to cry. I'm going to give my burden to the Lord. And then what we see in Psalm 23, he's gathered his thoughts. He's filtered his feelings. And now Psalm 23 is kind of the result of David's reflection right? And so I want to pick up and read beginning in verse one. We're going to read through the whole thing and unpack and unfold some of that together. So beginning in verse one, it says, the Lord is my what? 
shepherd, and I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right path for his name's sake. And then he goes on to say, even when I go through the darkest valley, there's, that's where we've been, right? Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger for what? You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And I love what it says here. You prepare a table before me and the presence of my enemies and you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And let's finish this together. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's a sharp contrast from the chapter before, isn't it? I mean, beforehand, he's stressing his concerns and he's, he's sharing his burden and he's saying, where are you, God? I need you. And all of a sudden in 23, he's transitioned from focusing on his circumstances to acknowledging who the Lord is in his life despite his circumstances. Amen? In fact, you may want to write this down, but our circumstances don't change who God is, but who God is can change how we see our circumstances. I don't know if you heard that, so I'm going to say it one more time because I need to hear it again. Our circumstances don't change who God is, but who God is can change how we see our circumstances. And Psalm 23 is, 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 is sharing with us. It's saying, hey, listen, the Lord has a role in your adversity. The Lord has a role in your daily riots of life. And so over the next few moments we have together, we're going to look at some of those roles, three of those roles in particular. So if you're taking notes, the first one is this, the Lord is our protector and our provider. The Lord is our protector and our provider. If you look back at 23, verse one and two, specifically verse one, he uses this description of the Lord. He says, you are my shepherd. Now it's important. It's not just him using a fleeting reference to define the Lord. David was very familiar with what it meant to be a shepherd because he was one. It was the only industry that he had actually ever worked in. And so he understood the responsibility of a shepherd. He knew that a shepherd was to account for the sheep, to guide and to provide for the sheep. But most importantly, a shepherd's role was to protect the sheep from, from harm, from predators. So David was uniquely qualified to use this as a definition of the Lord. In fact, he's not the only one. Jesus, 11 times throughout Scripture, was referred to as the good shepherd, and, and countless times the Lord was referred to as the shepherd as well. Now, you may be asking, well, why do we need a protector and a provider? Well, earlier we determined and concluded that life is difficult, right? If you're with me so far, Sam, with you. We determined life was difficult. And, and so if we look at John chapter 10, verse 10, one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible, it says this. It says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. To paraphrase that, what he's saying is, and this is in the words of Jesus, he's saying, hey, listen, the devil, your great adversary, the one who's opposing you, he's saying he wants to, to steal your joy, he wants to kill your passion, and he wants to destroy your faith. If you're with me, say, I'm with you. And yet here he comes with a promise because that's what Jesus does, right? And he says, but don't worry about it. He said, because I come to give life and life to the fullest. Somebody say amen. amen. See, the Lord in our riot, the Lord in our adversity is our protector and our provider. He is our shepherd. In fact, you can write it down this way, that Jesus knows your adversary and he isn't scared. 
Can we say that together? Jesus knows our adversary and he isn't scared. Why? Because he is our shepherd and more importantly, he is our savior. So in our daily role or daily riots, his role is to play protector and provider. But that's not the only thing because then the second role he plays in our adversity is this. The Lord is our refreshment and our guide. The Lord is our refreshment and our guide. In verse 3, David uses this word restore, which is you know, somewhat similar to maybe the words like refresh or made new. But in other words, what he's saying is he's saying the Lord fills us up when we're empty. Remember in Psalm 22, he said, I am poured out. He was saying, I have nothing left. Well, in Psalm 23, he's saying, ah, we've taken care of that because the Lord fills me up. Amen. Psalm 22 and 23, in context, David would have been running from Saul. Remember earlier I mentioned that David had been chased by Saul for quite some time. The reason he was being chased is because the Lord had anointed David as the the new king, if you will, of, of the country. And yet Saul was the current king. He wasn't quite happy about that. And so he began to pursue David, a young man, ultimately to kill him. Right? That was his ultimate goal. Well, they're, they're chasing him through the desert. I mean, keep in mind, this is the Middle East, so it's, it's, it's the desert. It's dirty, it's dusty. Uh, and, and guess what else isn't in the desert where it is most other places? Water, right. So imagine that David and some of his guys, they're running through the desert. They're getting tired. There's no question that they're getting tired, uh, but they're also needing nutrition and provision, right? They're needing things like food and water. Uh, the problem is, is you don't have water in the desert. In fact, uh, previous to the war that's taking place over there, I was actually blessed to spend about a half a month in Israel, Palestine, Jordan, Syria. Uh, and so I was able to bring some photos with me. This here is actually in Palestine at a site called Qumran. This is actually where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found inside the caves. Uh, notice though that you, you see a lot of uh, gray, reddish dirt, orange dirt, very mountainous. Um, notice what you don't see. You don't see water and very, very little of green, right? There's just a tiny little bit of green. And that's about as much as you see in most places in the Middle East. Um, and this is where David would have been running from Saul. Not much provision, not a lot of things that they would need to survive. And Psalm 22 is actually where David is desperate. And he's saying, I've been running forever and I don't know how long, how long I can do this anymore. And yet, in true God fashion, because we sang about it earlier, right? Is he good? Yeah. Is he God? Yeah, he's good God Almighty. Amen. And in true God fashion, exactly what David needed when he needed showed up. Because this is about a mile from Qumran. In fact, you're looking out at the Dead Sea way out there in the distance. And the Dead Sea is water, but it's the saltiest body of water in the world. No fish live in it, and you can't drink it. It'll dehydrate you. So it's good, really, for nothing. And so here's David. He's in the desert. He needs water. He can't drink it out of the lake. They call it a sea. It's really kind of a lake. Can't drink it out of there. And yet, in the middle of these two mountain ranges, he comes across a place called En Gedi. Everybody say En Gedi. It's kind of a weird word, right? But he comes across En Gedi. Now, here's what's important about En Gedi. What do you notice about the valley in En Gedi? It's green, Lush. There's actually bamboo growing in there. You know why it's growing in there? Because there's water. Not far from where that valley is, you take a kind of a, about a mile hike back into the valley, and you find six or seven different waterfalls, and they are freshwater waterfalls that you can drink from. And this is where David would have written Psalm 23. Does that make sense now? He was desperate. He was broken. He was in need. And the Lord said, don't worry. I've got you. 
In fact, it's in this particular site that they believe geographically is where David would have hidden and found rest in a cave. And that's where Saul came in to, according to scripture, relieve himself. And David cut the bottom of the robe. That happened here. And this is where David wrote Psalm 23 out of a place of understanding of who the Lord was in his life. David's greatest need was provided for exactly when he needed it. In fact, I want you to write this down. The Lord knows what you need, when you need it, but only he can provide it. So often we search for peace, value, understanding, certainty, in so many of the wrong places. But scripture tells us that it's only the Lord. In fact, in Philippians chapter 4, it says, In the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, it's like nothing else you can get from anyone or anything else. No person, no drink, no drug, nothing can compare to the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. See, the Lord in our adversity is our refreshment and our guide. He is our protector and our provider. Yet so often we're looking for peace in politics or comfort in addictions, belonging in toxic and unhealthy relationships. And yet right here in Scripture it says, you just got to come to me. I am your refreshment. I will restore your soul. But then lastly this morning in your notes, the third role that he plays in our adversity is this. The Lord is our comfort and our confidence. He is our comfort and our confidence. If you look back in chapter 23, verses 4 through 6, you see David talking about a lot of very important things. Remember, he's being chased by his enemies. Uh, he has been for quite some time. And essentially what he says in those first couple of verses of 4, or the first part of 4, he's saying, hey, listen, despite everything that's going on in my life, I fear no danger. Remember that part of that scripture? He says, I fear nothing. And you remember why he said he feared nothing? Do you remember that? He said, because you are what? With me. But then I love what verse 5 says, and this is where I want to sit for, for just a few minutes. I love what verse 5 says, because in verse 5 it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, I never forget the first time I read this passage, and I, I got to that part, verse 5, chapter 23, and it kind of felt almost insignificant. In fact, remember when you were in college and your professor said, Hey, you've got a thousand page paper due, but you could only ever write 600. So you had to start adding a bunch of adjectives and things to make up the thousand words, like all the fluff you put in there. Some of you guys were very integral. Apparently you didn't do that. I thought that was normal. I kind of thought that's what David was doing here. He was just kind of fluffing it up a little bit. But then the more you look into it, it's actually very, very significant, very, very valuable. Because he says, you prepare a table before being in the presence of my enemies. If we replace the word enemies, because the ultimate enemy is the devil, and we know that the, the devil will, will use deceit, he will use anxiety, he will use depression, he will use drugs, he'll use divorce. He'll, I mean, he will do anything he can, according to John 10, 10, to steal, kill, and destroy. If you're with me, say, I'm with you. And so you replace, that word, replace the word enemy with, with adversity or challenge or difficulty. In other words, what he's saying in, in chapter, chapter 23, verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the midst of my life's mess. Why does he prepare a table for us? 
Because in the midst of everything going on in our life, you know what Jesus wants to do most? He wants us to sit with him. He has, cre- he, he has prepared a table in the midst of chaos, in the midst of riot, in the midst of, of uncertainty, in the midst of depression, in the midst of addiction. He has set up a table. And it's not just any table. We're talking like, you know those tables, like you go to people's houses and they've got it set up formally. Like, like Jesus knows exactly where the plate goes and he knows where the fork goes, but there's like three different kinds of forks. There's a regular fork, there's a small fork, there's like an even smaller fork. I, I don't even know what they all do, right? But, but it's all got a formal placement, all the etiquette, right? Jesus has set up a formal table and it's only got two, two seats, one for him and one for you. And he has put all your favorite foods on there. For some of you, that might be a barbecue. For some of you, he might on that table have uh, Italian food. For some of us, it might just be a stack of Little Debbies. You know what I'm saying? Like, but, but here's the thing. He's got all your favorite stuff. He's got all your favorite stuff on that table. He has prepared a table just for you. And he says, in the midst of everything going on, in the midst of your trial and challenge, I just want you to sit right here and dine with me. In fact, you could say that feasting with the Father is where true peace and comfort come from. Unfortunately, though, because of how we pursue peace from other things, it seems more like we're dining with the devil sometimes than feasting with the Father. You ever had those times in your life where it's kind of bad news one after another, after another, after another? If that's you, raise your hand. You've had those times in your life, right? Like, it's just, it's constant, right? Right? They say bad things come in threes, so at this point, when two things bad happen, my wife and I go, all right, just go ahead, go ahead, just bring it, you know? So we had a a storm, if you will, back in May. We had some, like most people, challenges and trials along the way. I mean, we're parenting three kids. Come on, every day is a trial, right? This one particular day, though, in May, uh, it was beginning our busy travel season with summer camps and things like that, and... Uh, I had left after church and had somebody driving me to, to a camp about six hours away. And uh, we're driving. I get a call from my wife. And she says, uh, hey, something's not right. And I said, well, what, what, what do you mean? And she said, it, it's our son Bentley. He's the one that's here with me this weekend. And um, I actually just walked out that back door. <laughs> so Bentley, uh, she said, he's not acting right. He's, he's drinking a lot of water. He says he can't, he's always thirsty. He, he feels jittery. I mean, there's just several symptoms. And she said, I talked to Kirsty, who's a friend of ours. She's a nurse. And, and Kirsty had recommended, she's like, have you checked his, uh, checked his uh, blood sugar? And I was like, well, we don't generally make a habit out of checking an 11-year-old's blood sugar, you know? And she said, just, just go check it. We said, okay. So I said, call me back when you, you know, she had to go to Walmart and get a glucose meter. She said, call me back when you get there and, and check it. She said, okay. So she, she calls me back. She was in the Walmart parking lot, right? In true mom fashion. She wasn't going back home. She went and bought the first one she found. She gets in the car and she just starts ripping the box open. People are watching her. She's like stabbing his finger with a needle. I mean, it's a whole thing, right? Right there in the Walmart parking lot. We thought we were a classy town. Apparently not. Um, so she, she, she sticks them and, and she gets the blood and she puts in the glucose meter and it just says high. I don't know what that means. And so she calls me back. Hey, it says high. I'm not really sure. Like, is it supposed to have a number? And I was like, I think it's supposed to have a number. And uh, she said, what should we do? I said, you know what? Like there's a new emergency room, outpatient emergency room, does pediatrics right from kind of down the street from our neighborhood. I said, just, just go there. Let them check them out. She said, okay. I said, call me when you get an update. 
So she calls me. The next call I get, she's boo-hoo crying. I mean, it's, it, it's awful. And I'm like, hey, slow down. Like, what, what, what's happening, you know? And she said, they called an ambulance, and, and they're doing an emergency transport. Uh, they're, they're, they're taking them to the med center, which is the, the Houston has the largest medical center uh, in, in the world, um, and, and the Texas Children's Hospital is there. And so they're like, we're taking him to Texas Children's. Um, they, they had checked his blood sugar, and I didn't know what this meant at the time. Now I know it was very dangerous, but they checked it and it came back very, very close to 700. Yeah, if you don't know, that's not good. It's supposed to be between 70 and like 120, like on average, right? And so that was the issue. So uh, they rushed him by ambulance. I hopped back in with the guy who drove me. He, you know, he, he's, he's speeding. I mean, there's no way that we did the speed limit that day. And, and, and we get back. I, I get into the, the hospital in the emergency room only to see my 11-year-old boy, my little baby, is, is in, not just in a hospital bed, but they've got him in a trauma room. Like, I didn't know how like, big of a deal this was. And they have him in a trauma room, and there's three doctors, and there's about eight nurses, and they've got stuff like tubes and wires and whatever. And I mean, it, it was a chaotic scene. And a couple hours later in the emergency room, the doctor comes in and, and just very, very briefly says, hey, listen, we ran some tests, uh, A1C, this, that, whatever. And he said, as clear as he could, he said, he has type 1 diabetes. And he walked out just left. And I was like, hey, doc, I'm going to need more. Like, I've heard of diabetes and I very vaguely understand it. I was like, but I'm going to need more. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I just need more information. And so that began about a four or five day journey at the hospital. We were admitted and it took about two or three days to stabilize. Um, In the meantime, in the meantime, we are visiting with doctors and nurses almost by the hour. And these educators are coming into the room and they're teaching us They're teaching us about type 1 diabetes. They're saying things like every single time he puts anything in his mouth, whether it's a snack, a meal, or a drink, he'll have to have a needle in his arm first. They're saying things like, hey, listen, if it drops below a certain level, he could drop into a diabetic coma. And if that happens, you have this little solution here. It's called glucagon. It's very similar to what Narcan looks like, and you use it exactly the same way. If you go into a diabetic coma, you shoot up their nose. You have to roll them on their side. They're going to throw up. You have to call the ambulance. Like, this is our life for three or four days in the hospital. I mean, it's fearful. I mean, we're, we're growing uncertain about our life now, and our little boy is broken. He's broken. Every time somebody would come in the room, he'd be in the hospital bed, and he would cover his head with the blanket. And when we would pull it back, it was just tears. And it wasn't those kind of tears like I didn't get a toy tears. It was big fat tears and he was so broken. The reason he was broken was because everything that was being told to us was being received as a diagnosis of death instead of diabetes. The way they were saying it to us, although it was probably legitimate and correct, we were receiving it as all the aspirations that he ever wanted to accomplish in life, he would never be able to do it. That the rest of his life would have this cloud of diabetes. He would never amount to anything. And that's how he felt too. so broken. And because my little 11-year-old boy is broken, I'm broken. And the only escape that I had from the hospital room was to look out the window at the really fancy BMW cars at the dealership next door. For days, that's all I did. I just look out the window at cars that I'll probably never be able to afford. So, and yet in that moment, it took a few days, but right before we left the hospital, I was reminded of Psalm 23, specifically verse five, where he says, I prepare a table 
for you in the presence of your enemies, in the presence of your chaos. He said, can't you just come sit with me? He said, pull up a seat. I want to spend time with you. I want to teach you. I want to feast with you. I want to comfort you. Just take a seat. In fact, you can say it this way, that hope in anything, I learned this this day, hope in anything other than Jesus isn't enough. When we got out of the hospital, remember, I was supposed to be at a summer camp. And my little boy was supposed to come to that summer camp two days after I got there. He loves summer camp. Especially this one, because that one that we were going to is actually a youth camp. It's about 500 of our students, 7th through 12th grade. So he gets to hang out with all the other pastor's kids and run around and do all the fun stuff. And that's part of the reason why he was so broken in the hospital. So when we got out of the hospital, we got discharged. Guess where he wanted to go? Summer camp. And in true pastor kid fashion, guess what we did? We went to summer camp. Brand new type 1 diabetic. Had no idea what we were doing, and we were going to a place that we had no control over the food, but we were going to figure it out. And the first night, we rolled in right before the, the, the night worship session. I have no authority at this camp. I'm not overseeing it, and praise God for that because of all the things that happened. And I think he knew that I just needed to worship that night. Because I, I, remember, I remember sitting, it was kind of a weird setup. We were in the round, the stage was in the middle, so there really wasn't a front or back to the room. But I remember kind of tucking myself away, kind of near where the soundboard and everything was. And the band starts playing this song that I've heard probably hundreds of times. I've sang it hundreds of times, but it didn't mean anything until that day. It was a song called Firm Foundation. And I'm going to read just a handful of the lyrics. The second verse says this. It says, I've still got joy in chaos, and I've got a peace that makes no sense. I won't be going under because I'm not held by my own strength. Because I've built my life on Jesus, and he's never let me down. He's faithful through every season, so why would he fail now? And then it says, he But then the bridge, when the bridge came, there was a puddle of tears around me that night. Because the bridge came and it said, rain came and wind blew. But my house was built on you. And then it goes on to say, I am safe with you. And then he says, and I'm going to make it. Like many of you, we've faced challenge and trial. Thought his life was over, but we sat at the table. And you know what the Lord said? The Lord said, diabetes changes a lot for an 11-year-old boy. But it doesn't change the fact that this 11-year-old boy can still change the world as a diabetic. And I'm here to tell you, he has. As we wrap up, I want to share these pictures with you. Our church did an initiative for evangelism where we had these little tokens that go on key change and you could stamp letters into them. And we challenged our church. We said, we want you to stamp the initials of somebody that you were praying for and specifically an opportunity to share the gospel with. We never challenged our son. He was there, but we never pushed him to do it. But he did it. And he put in there MWM, which stands for Mason McGee, which is a friend of his. 
He prayed for Mason. A couple months later, Mason started coming on a Wednesday night. One week after another after another, Mason got saved. A few weeks later, I baptized him. Story doesn't end there. Mason's parents were there that day. And his mom said, I have questions. I want to know more. My wife had been discipling and evangelizing with her for a few months. Eventually, Angie got saved. And guess what? Got to baptize her too. And yet, the story still doesn't end because the day that I baptized Angie in the lake, she had a group of friends and family there. One of them in particular came in support of Angie as a person, but not in her faith. She was a self-proclaimed atheist. She said, I'm coming because I love you and I care for you, but not necessarily because of the step of faith that you're taking. I shared the gospel that day because I knew she was there. Two weeks later, she was at a, at a church, not our church, but another church. Guess what? She accepted Jesus. And guess what happened then? She invited her ex-husband to church. Now they're going to church together again, and he got saved. (laughs) My point is this, is the Lord has a role in all of our chaos and all of our adversity. But the first and most important thing we have to do is to sit with him at the table. He'll do the rest. He'll do the rest. We sit at the table, we find protection and provision, guidance and refreshment, comfort and confidence. For me and my family, we chose to sit at the table. It was the best decision we ever made. So with all that said, let's pray this morning together and ask the Lord as we go forward to remind us to come to him before all other things to find what we so desperately need. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you for today. God, we thank you for an opportunity to be in your word, but we also thank you for the reminder today that God, you you are our shepherd and our guide, our protector and our provider. God, as we wrap up our time together today and we leave, we pray that these words would not be words that conclude here, but instead begin conversations within our hearts and minds and even our homes. God, continue to remind us that our comfort and our peace comes from you, not from anything else or anyone else, but you and you alone. Now, for those of us in the room who maybe say, you've been talking a lot about the Lord and a lot about Jesus and the peace that they bring, but I don't know if I've made that decision. I don't know if I fully understand what that means. Then today, I want to give you that opportunity. If today is the day that you say, I need this peace that passes all understanding, If today is your day to make that decision, you say something like this. Say, dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've messed some things up. But today I come before you. I ask you into my life as my Savior and my Lord. Comfort me, guide me, lead me, and use me for your glory from this day forward. I ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said.
Amen. Amen. If you made that decision today, Pastor Lloyd would love to know about that. So on that bulletin you received on the way in, it's got a tear out. Write your name in there. Select that little notch there that says that you've made a decision to follow Jesus. And make sure to get that to Pastor Lloyd so he can follow up and get some resources in your hand to help you on your new faith journey. I can't say how honored I am to be here today. Thank you very much, Pastor Lloyd. Thank you very much. Thank you, brother. Well, we can't help but have a sense of a good pride, you know, to have Taylor come and preach and did such a great job, great message, great presentation. You got to feel a little bit of pride in here, you know, of uh, all the years that he grew up and uh, we had the part that we, small part that we were able to play in his life. So thank you, Taylor, so much. God bless you. All right. Let's stand and uh, have a word of prayer and be dismissed and pray for sunshine. Lord God, we thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for the encouragement and the challenge that you brought to us through this, through the heart of, of Taylor, uh, Lord. And we just thank you uh, as we've learned a lot of uh, you wanting to sit with us and in the middle of all that we're dealing with. And uh, if we've learned anything, it's just, just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great day.